everybody, and welcome to this episode of Who Knew Presents The New World, our special mini-series of our regular Who Knew a History podcast, hosted by myself, Mrs. Allgood, and Mr. Rickson, your two favorite A-Push teachers from Bishop O'Connell High School. Um, hello, Mr. Rickson. How are you today? I'm good. Good, Mrs. Allgood. Looking forward to diving into another uh, topic today from the New World and Colonial America. It's going to be good. I know. I am very excited for you. I know we're talking about one of your like very niche interests today. Uh, no one that I know except for you gets so excited over this stuff. And hopefully you'll be able to spread your enthusiasm to our lucky, loyal, and captive listeners. Um, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so why don't you go ahead and drop us into history? Where are we today? When are we? Well, I'm going to actually go forward in time in order for us to go back in time to talk about colonial America. So I'm actually going to start in the year 1930. So in 1930, Mahatma Gandhi and 78 followers began their 200-mile protest march known as the Salt March against Britain's imperial rule of India. Warner Brothers Studios releases its first cartoon series entitled Looney Tunes. The Toll House Inn in Whitman, Massachusetts begins baking and serving their original chocolate chip cookies. And on June 29, 1930, Pope Pius XI canonized three Jesuit missionaries from the 17th century, René Goupil, Jean de la Lande, and Isaac Jogues. And their lives and their martyrdom are an important part of the story of French colonization in the New World. And that's what today's episode is going to be focused on. All right. Yeah, I have a feeling we're not going to be in 1930 for too long, uh, but that's a good place to start. Uh, Mr. Rickson, I know that you are a graduate from Fordham University in New York, and there is a very special place in your heart for the Jesuits. I've learned more about the Jesuits in this one year of sharing a classroom with you than I have in my entire life. And it's really awesome. <laughs> um, so for those of you who don't know much about their role in the early colonization of the uh, Americas, can you give us a bit of context for uh, the French colonization of the New World? Absolutely. And and you're, I, I appreciate your uh, your commentary on my own enthusiasm for for the Jesuits. And, and I think you're absolutely right, Mrs. Allgood. And I know that for many of the student listeners, you know, you may have friends or family members who have gone to Gonzaga here in the DC metro area. Um, we actually have a couple of teachers on staff, including Mr. Horan in the business and technology department, who is himself a Gonzaga alum. And this is actually kind of, it's kind of a personal episode for me in a lot of ways. And the, the best way that I can sort of connect that back is when when I was a student at Fordham, um, and for those student listeners, um, you may be familiar with some other podcasts, and there's a podcast that's called 99% Invisible. And there's an expression that that podcast uses when they talk about sort of like quirky historical things and design and architecture. And the host of the show says that some people are plaque readers and some people aren't. And a plaque reader is somebody who, when there's a sign or historical marker, reads the sign. Well, when I was a student at Fordham, I lived in a building named 
Martyr's Court, and it had three separate wings. And one of them was named Goopal Hall, one of them was named Lalonde Hall, and one of them was named Jogues Hall. And I think for most students, you just sort of, you don't think twice about it, right? I mean, everything at this university is named after some old dead Jesuit who's been dead for 150, 200, 300, 400 years. But it really piqued my interest. I was like, well, who were these guys? Like, why why do we name this place after these three priests? And why, and, you know, and why do we also call it Martyr's Court? So um, a lot of today's story, I think, is going to sort of connect back to to that and sort of me me piecing together this story as a student myself and then and really fleshing it out now and really learning a lot more than than I even knew when I was a college student. So but I digress. So want to get back into the historical context for a minute here. So you guys remember from our previous episode on Spain and Spanish colonization. So you'll remember that in 1492, Columbus sails the ocean blue. So Columbus, on behalf of King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain, he sets sail for a shorter passage to India. Of course, instead, he arrives in the Caribbean Sea in North America, and he kicks off his global competition among European nations for colonizing the Americas. So about 50 years after that, the French monarchy begins their pursuit of New World territory. And most of that is concentrated at first in what we now think of as Quebec in eastern French-speaking Canada. So the French lay claim to the St. Lawrence River, which was explored extensively by Frenchman Jacques Cartier, The first permanent French settlement in the Americas was established by another Frenchman, Samuel de Champlain, in 1608. It was actually a fortified village on the St. Lawrence River that they called Quebec. And today, that is the present-day Quebec City that sits. You can actually go into the old city, the actual old fortified part of the city. It is super cool uh, for those who, who haven't had a chance. It's a super neat neat place to go. And over time, the French would lay claim to really a lot of territory in North America. They lay claim to the upper Mississippi River, the Mississippi River Basin, which they name Louisiana after King Louis XIV, and much of the Great Lakes region. And unlike the the Spaniards that had sort of this dual colonization purpose of not just economics, but evangelization, the French were mostly concerned about the economics part, and their principal focus was on fur, things like beavers and bears and deer and moose, and these pelts were incredibly valuable to European consumers. And in order to keep that trade viable, the French made a concerted effort to really build strong relationships with the local Native American tribes. What they would do is they would set up these trading posts. And and in some cases, a trading post was literally nothing more than a barrel on the river shore with maybe a tent set up. And what would happen is these would be established in the St. Lawrence River Valley, the Great Lakes, along the Mississippi River. And what would happen is that the French would come to the trading post with trinkets and things of value that the Native Americans might want. The Native Americans knew where these animals were located, right, where maybe they nested or maybe where they lived. 
and they worked collaboratively. And it, it really is kind of a unique circumstance among the European colonizers that the French really do make a concerted effort to focus more on the economics than the sort of subjugation part that we we highlighted a little bit with the Spaniards, uh, particularly in the Caribbean and in, in Latin America. Yeah, for sure. I think this is really, really interesting, especially when we when we do take the time in the school year to compare how the English, the French and the Spanish are going to have relationships with the natives. And the French are definitely the most peaceful. Like you say, they're making an, a concerted effort to maintain good relations so that they can make a lot of money off of this. I mean, you definitely attract more, more bee fly. Is it you attract more flies with honey? Is that what they say? Um, Correct. Okay. Yeah. I, I know my colloquialisms, um, but <laughs> I, it's definitely going to be a lot different than say the Spanish who enslave uh, an entire race of people in Central America. And then the English who just basically ignore the natives Um and that just doesn't turn out really well. So yeah, I mean, the French and the natives, they're going to trade with each other. They have good working relationships. There's a lot of intermarriage. Uh, they adopt the living conditions and the customs of some native groups. But where do the Jesuits fit into all of this? Because they're kind of a different piece of this puzzle. In 1615, so we've now, the French have sort of established these colonies for about 10 to 12 years the French do eventually decide that they should start evangelizing and converting the Native Americans they're encountering to Christianity. And a lot of this has to do with these European rivalries where Spanish Catholicism is very much viewed as this sort of faith of subjugation, right? Where the Native Americans are being forcibly converted to Catholicism it creates this, what's known as the black legend, this sort of mistreatment and very anti-Catholic sentiment among the European world. And so the French want to basically show that Catholicism isn't this awful, brutal subjugation religion, that it is one of peace and love and tolerance. So the French tell Samuel de Champlain that they're going to start sending missionaries to New France to convert the natives. So the first group that comes are the Recollect Friars. They are followed then in 1630 by missionaries from the Society of Jesus, also known as the Jesuits. And just a quick backstory, the Jesuits were founded by Ignatius of Loyola, who was himself a Spaniard. He was a Spanish nobleman. And in 1541, he becomes the Jesuit order's first superior general in Paris, France. He's actually, he and his group of companions actually are ordained and decide to start this mission of evangelization and missionary work. And it's quite extensive. They go to parts of Asia, Africa, South America. They do travel with the Spaniards during the 1600s. But the focus I really want to do today is on Isaac Jokes, or Father Isaac Jokes. He's kind of the the leader, if you will, or sort of the most famous of these French Jesuits that come to New France. So he was born in Orleans, France in 1607. And he decides that he wants to enter the priesthood. And he's ordained in 1636. So he's only 29 years old, and he is then sent to Quebec. He's sent specifically to Trois-Rivières, or Three Rivers, which is a small French trading post along the St. Lawrence River. 
And for a period of six years, the Jesuit priests would go with the French traders to the trading posts, and they would minister to the Native Americans who stopped there. So they might share stories of Christianity or talk about the, the lives of the saints, or they may, you know, they would obviously be ministering to their own French compatriots, right? They would be hearing confessions and celebrating mass. It's important to remember, though, that the Jesuits and the French never entered in sort of into the heart of Native American territory. This was sort of a, a middle ground, if you will, for the Native Americans and for the French travelers. Eventually, though, Isaac Jogues ask the, asks the Huron tribe, and that's the tribe that they are sort of engaging with the most frequently, if he can travel back with them to their respective village. The Hurons say, okay, that sounds good. And he travels there and he lives among them and he doesn't really carry himself above them. He, in many ways, acts like their servant. He would gather firewood for their meals. He cooked for them. They'd have lengthy conversations about spirituality and the existence of God. He actually brought with him a small mass kit that was given to him by his mother back in France. He would celebrate mass with the Jesuits who traveled with him. He would start. He started baptizing the Huron tribes people. I mean, he really does become an integral part of of this tribe. So it sounds like everything's going pretty peaceful so far, but. I- they never do in the stories that we tend to to choose, uh, particularly with this this particular man that we know becomes a martyr. Um, what's going to be the the turning point for Father Jogues? Well, Mrs. Allgood, you're you're absolutely right, and 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 tragically, this story does not have a particularly happy ending, right? If we're talking about somebody who was martyred for their faith, that pretty much gives the ghost away, if you will. So. <laughs> Now, tragically, the French Jesuits who travel with the Hurons end up getting caught in the middle of a long-standing feud between Native American tribes and the, in, in the New World. The Hurons had a long-standing rivalry with the Mohawk Indians, and Mohawk Native Americans are one of the tribes of the Iroquois Confederacy, which was a huge number of tribes really going up to the Great Lakes really as far south as like Kentucky and the Ohio River Valley. I mean, this was a pretty wide geography. But if we're thinking geographically between the Hurons and the Mohawks, the Hurons lived in the area north of the Great Lakes. So basically Canada, basically like present-day Quebec and Ontario. The Iroquois lived south of the Great Lakes. And in particular, the Mohawk tribe lived in the western Hudson River Valley in what is now upstate New York. Now, New York had been colonized by the Dutch, who had established Fort Orange along the Hudson River. That's actually where the present-day state capital of New York, Albany, is, is located today. Now, while the Dutch had traded with the Mohawks, they gave the Mohawks one of the most important items that they could give them, and that was guns. The guns essentially made the Mohawks invincible in their long-standing war and feud with the Hurons. And on August 3rd, 1642, Father Jogues and a group of missionaries, including a lay Jesuit brother named René Goupil, were attacked and captured by Mohawk Indians. And the Mohawks 
took them from village to village. And basically every time they went to a new village, they were beaten, tortured in some new gruesome sort of way. In fact, uh, René Goupil was the first of them to be killed by the Mohawks. He was killed by Tomahawk. And when you read that out loud and you're reading it in your research, you think to yourself, oh my gosh, that's just, that's such a gruesome way. I mean, all of this is gruesome, but it's a particular it's a particularly harsh way um, to, to take someone's life. Yeah, I, the Mohawk definitely have a reputation among the Iroquois for being among the most fierce and sort of warrior mentality uh, tribe of Indians among the Iroquois Confederacy. Um, and they, they're known for being particularly brutal against their enemies in this way of sending a message of, you know, who's in charge. So I really have quite a bad feeling for what's probably going to happen here. Yeah, and and I would just caution the student listeners and our our regular listeners on the Who New feed that th- this next part is is pretty gruesome. So if you're if you're doing something uh, that involves food, perhaps you should pause or skip ahead and come back to this. Jogues was really made to suffer the most at the hands of the Mohawks. He's sort of the unofficial leader of the Jesuits who have gone on this excursion. The Mohawks would beat him with rods. They pulled his fingernails out of his hands. Hot coals would be poured on his body. And perhaps the most gruesome of, of punishments for Jogues, his thumbs and forefingers were cut off. And in some instances, they were actually chewed off. They were gnawed off by the Mohawk Indians. It really was, it was, it was deliberately designed to just make it as gruesome and painful as possible. And Jogues really does bear bear the brunt of this torture and abuse during this captivity. I I wonder why it was his fingers, of all things. Do you have any thoughts as to why? It actually has to do with punishment around consecrating the Eucharist. So the Mohawk Native Americans understood some of the theology of the Catholics, the, of the Jesuits, and they understood that the Eucharist was particularly important to to these Jesuits. So they, of course, would witness Father Jogues consecrating the Eucharist with his thumb, holding it up with his thumb and forefinger during um, during the celebration of the Eucharist. So by cutting off his thumbs and forefingers, he actually can't perform mass anymore. So it is it, it's very much a I mean, it's almost in a lot of ways, it's like a form of cultural warfare. Um, it's it's pretty gruesome. Yeah, I think it's also important to make a distinction here. This is incredibly brutal treatment of a prisoner, and this isn't totally unlike what a lot of Native groups do to European captives. We see the same thing in uh, Virginia with the Pamunkey and Powhatan Confederacy here as well. It's also these types of descriptions that lead to this narrative as Native Americans as savages. And I think looking at this from a European lens in the 17th century, uh, this type of punishment of gnawing off your fingers is a very un-European type of punishment, but it's not uncommon in this particular cultural realm. One of the reasons that it was it was really made to make him look almost like unrecognizable and, and really be sort of a message to other Europeans that this is what happens when you come into our like our territory. So Jogues lived in captivity for nearly a year. 
until he was taken by the Mohawk to a trading post of the Dutch. You may recall that I said that the Mohawk and the Dutch had somewhat of a trading relationship. Well, the Dutch see jokes and they just are like, we feel so much pity and sorrow for this man. The Dutch actually convinced the Mohawks to let him go and they arrange for him to sail back to France. So the Dutch coordinate, he's going to travel on a ship that's going to leave Dutch territory and go back to France. He actually arrives in France on Christmas Day, 1643. And when he disembarked from the ship, he's, he's going to be greeted by some of his fellow French Jesuits. And they actually described him as being unrecognizable, that he was so wounded and so scarred, they actually weren't sure that it was actually Isaac Jogues. So it sounds like he's been through quite a bit. And it sounds like many of these people, or many people in his position would probably like to stay in France. But like we said, considering his later martyrdom and canonization, it's probably not the case, right? Yeah, it's it's actually kind of, in a lot of ways, it's kind of a beautiful and moving story in a lot of ways, because he really had formed this kinship with the Huron people. And he really wanted, he felt that it was God's will for him to minister to the Hurons who he had spent so much time with. I mean, he'd been there for six years and then he goes into captivity. And you're right. I think most of us would say, I'm never going back, right? I've been tortured. I've been mutilated. There's no way I'm going back to going back to the new world. So at first he remains in France. He actually travels to Orleans to visit his mother, which I thought was a very sort of sweet part of the story. And I mentioned before Jogues had been unable to celebrate Mass because, according to church teaching, a consecrated host can only be held by a priest's thumb and forefingers. So you think about that, too, just the fact that this is such an important part of the Catholic faith, right, is is the, is the celebration of the Eucharist, and this is something that is now denied him as a priest because of this mutilation, in fact, Pope Urban VIII gave Jogues a dispensation to say Mass with his mutilated hands. And Urban went even further, calling him a living martyr, basically saying, like, this guy has suffered for his faith and we should honor him and celebrate him. And despite all of that, Jogues believed that God had called him to serve, not just serve the Hurons who he had lived with peacefully, but actually the Mohawks. So, while he had lived in captivity, he learned some of the Mohawk language, he learned their custom, and Jogues fervently believed that it was God's plan for him to return and evangelize among the Mohawks. So in 1646, he goes back to the New World, and he even he even requests to go to Mohawk territory, which again, I just... You, you really think about this, just like, I know that I do not have the courage and the, the, the wherewithal to say, sure, I've been beaten and tortured and mutilated. Let me go spend time with the people who did that to me. But again, that's why these people are saints. It's why they are, why they are martyrs. So he travels to Mohawk territory accompanied by a lay Jesuit missionary named Jean de la Lande. And they're actually there as part of a peace envoy. So while Jogues had been back in France, the Huron and the Mohawk had negotiated a peace treaty with the French serving as the mediators of that peace treaty. But it's a very 
tenuous piece, meaning that one bad thing can happen and the whole thing's broken. Now, we have to admit, we have to sort of include this. The French negotiated this treaty so that it would benefit them economically. So while it's nice that they did it, they obviously had you know economic and monetary reasons for doing it. Jogues and Lalande arrive in a Mohawk village, and right away the Mohawk get suspicious. So we'll talk about this a little bit with the students, but one of the things that Europeans brought to the New World were European diseases that Native Americans did not have built up immunities to, particularly things like smallpox and measles. So the Mohawk are going, well, these European guys show up and they usually bring disease. So we're not so excited that these guys have shown up yet again. The Jesuits, of course, had Christian symbols and clothing and their mass kits, which the Mohawks believed possessed some kind of black magic in their spiritual tradition. And many of the younger Mohawk who didn't know Jogues or had no, had no memory of him or, or knowledge of him coming to the village, they were shocked to, to meet a white person who understood their language and even beyond that actually knew the physical geography of the village. Like Jogues came back and he was like, oh, I know where that house is. And I know that the shaman lives over there or something like that. I mean, for a lot of the natives, they just thought that this was, this was some sort of witchcraft or black magic. On October 18th, 1646, the Mohawks kill Isaac Jogues. They just think that he is, he's some form of evil and he's, you know, bewitched in some way. So they kill him. They kill Lalonde the next day. During his New World missionary trips, in spite of his suffering, in spite of his martyrdom, Jogues is estimated to have converted over 50 Native Americans to Christianity. And I'm always, I'm always sort of touched by this story because I, just, I find it to be such a courageous story and one of tremendous sacrifice. The fact that Jogues, I mean, I think Jogues more or less knew that if he went back to the New World, he was going to die. He was going to be killed by Native Americans. But he understood that. And in fact, when he went back to the Mohawk village, he was quoted as saying to a fellow priest, my heart tells me that if I am the one to be sent on this mission, I shall go, but I shall not return. But I would be glad if our Lord wished to complete the sacrifice where he began it. Farewell, dear father. Pray that God unite me to himself inseparably. And, and I think it's a really powerful message for, for our student listeners, especially for us in a Catholic school and a Catholic tradition. This is someone who was so committed to their faith and, and committed to helping a group of people that he had been, that the French had been in somewhat of conflict with. And being, like, we so often think of holding a grudge and being upset at somebody. And for Jogues to, and Jogues had every reason to be upset and, and angry at the Mohawk. And yet he said, God has called me to go back and try to, to spread the, spread the good news, so to speak. So I think it's a really, it's a really powerful story of, of martyrdom and sacrifice and ultimately uh, a story of, of great personal faith. Yeah, I'm so glad that you decided on Jogues for our topic today. And as you say, he is a great symbol of the Catholic faith, but I think so too that he speaks so much to American national identity, which is something that we come back to quite a bit throughout the course of, of A Push. I mean, stuff like 
courage and determination for fighting what you believe in is so huge in what it means to be an American today. Um, and I, I think the history of the Jesuits is a really integral part of the fabric of American culture. So thank you, Mr. Rickson, for doing the legwork on today's episode. For our listeners, we've come to my favorite part of the podcast, the fact off. Mr. Rickson, are you ready? I'm always ready for the fact off. Absolutely. Oh boy, where do I start? So as a non-Catholic person and with very little uh, background on the Jesuits, I did have to do quite a bit of research for my facts today, and some of them are a bit of a stretch. Um, But I do want to start with um, one that I was really kind of surprised to know. So in his lifetime, Jogues actually planned to become a martyr, at least according to some historians. And as a non-Catholic, I found this to be really interesting because I like never really thought about it. I thought that that was something you didn't really plan to do, but apparently it's not that uncommon. Uh, he believed that being martyred would mean partaking in the torment that Jesus had endured on the cross. And uh, according to one of his letters, he thought that this would indicate, quote, his acceptance into the pantheon of heroes whose physical and spiritual strength had been equal to the cruel persecutions inflicted on the primitive church. So, I mean, kind of looking at his refusal to leave the Mohawk and his desire to go back to this place where he had been tortured, I think kind of speaks to this kind of personal um, ambition to be to be helpful, but also faith-driven. My first fact has to do with Fordham, which is my alma mater. And again, Fordham is one of about 30 Jesuit colleges and universities in the United States. Some of the others include Georgetown University here in the D.C. area, Boston College, Anything named Loyola is a Jesuit school. There are four Loyolas in the United States, uh, including one just up the road in, in Baltimore, Maryland. Fordham actually has a very deep connection to French Jesuits specifically. So when the university was founded in 1841 by Bishop John Hughes of New York, who was himself an Irish immigrant, he wanted the university to be run by Jesuits. So he very much courted the Jesuits for to come to New York and, and take the university and run it um, in, in the Diocese of New York. So in 1845, Hughes sold the campus to the Jesuits for $40,000. And the following year, 29 Jesuit priests from Kentucky And we don't think of Kentucky as a very French location, but there were lots of French missionaries who traveled all the way down the Ohio River Valley into, think about like Southwest Ohio, like where Cincinnati is. There was a lot of Jesuit, French Jesuit presence there. They start moving all their stuff up to New York, including their library, their lab equipment. The Jesuits were very accomplished scientists of this era, as well as zoological specimens the visual in my mind is is very charming and and kind of kind of quirky very nerdy uh that is that is an adorable thought this next one is a huge stretch so bear with me um (laughs) so some of our listeners and my students uh know that i used to live in williamsburg before coming here to o'connell and i spent the summers away from school working as an interpreter in colonial williamsburg where i would like you know go dress up like a colonial lady and just talk to people in the street uh and one of the ways that i would try to start conversations with different people uh was to ask them to help me read uh because i 
pretended that I was self-educating myself, but different story. Um, and the only like old colonial book that I like had to work from was a pamphlet called George Washington's 110 Rules of Civility. Um, it's this book that he published when he was like 16 and had different rules like shift not yourself in the sight of others nor gnaw your nails. Ew. When you sit down, keep your f- feet firm and even without putting one on the other or crossing them. So just like how to be polite in public. But I found out today uh, that this book was largely based off a set of rules of civility written by the French Jesuits in 1595. So I have been living by the rules of the Jesuits my entire life and had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> So that's actually interesting. I was familiar with the rules of civility with Washington, but I actually never knew what their origin was. So that's kind of a... So George Washington has a Jesuit connection. Now I'm going to bore people with that fact in the future. You're welcome. (laughs) Thank you, Mrs. Allgood. (laughs) So my next fact has to do with when Jogues was set free by the Mohawk. So we mentioned that he was brought to a Dutch trading post by the Mohawk in 1643, and the Dutch negotiate for his release and to go back to France. So during that trip, he was accompanied by a Dutch reform minister named Johannes Megapolensis to New Amsterdam, which was the Dutch city established on what is now Manhattan Island and became New York City. So from there, he would eventually set sail for France. But what that means is that Because Jogues spent time on Manhattan Island before he traveled back to France, that means that Isaac Jogues was the first Catholic priest to visit Manhattan Island, which I never knew until doing the research for today's episode. And in fact, in Manhattan, there's a lovely tribute of him at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City, which is one of the most important Catholic churches in the United States. There's actually a lovely carving of Jogues on one of the doors of the church that says St. Isaac Jogues, first Catholic priest in New York City. So again, truly in keeping with our title, who knew? I've walked by uh, St. Patrick's dozens of times when I was a student in New York and never never knew it was there. So it was a nice, nice, nice fact to pick up today. That is so cool. And I think that goes back to something you said in the beginning of the episode today about being a plaque reader. Like we see so much history or historically inspired things around us all the time. And how many of us really take the time to notice, which is exactly what my next fact is about. And it is considerably less serious uh, than yours. (laughs) So so growing up uh, in Williamsburg, uh, me and my my friends in middle school would have our our parents drop us off at Busch Gardens, Williamsburg, where the theming is old Europe. And uh, the only non-European section of the park is New France, which is based on this like kind of French colonial like fur trading post. They have like bluegrass music that plays out and everyone's dressed up in like Daniel Boone caps and the whole things. Um, But my favorite place to get a snack in all of Bush Gardens is called the Three Rivers Snack Post. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> which I did not notice until you mentioned today, like literally 20 minutes ago, that Jogues arrived at Trois Rivières or Three Rivers, a small French trading post along the St. Lawrence River. And I, uh, Three River Snack Post is positioned between the New France area of the park and Old Aquitaine. It offers adequate snacks to make it through the perilous journey, buttered caramel and kettled popcorn, plus funnel cakes and shamu bars. <laughs> yes, I'm sure I'm sure that when Jogues and his fellow Jesuits arrived at Trois-Rivières that they had shamu bars. I'm sure that that was something that was uh, was a deli- a French delicacy. Um, Came all the way them. from Orleans. Where are my Shamu bars? <laughs> <laughs> so I'll I'll close with this last fact that actually you you got for us. So so thank you. So we mentioned Pope Urban the Eighth, who gave Saint Isaac Jogues special permission to celebrate Mass with his mutilated hands. The, the original idea being that he couldn't consecrate the Eucharist with his mutilated hands. Urban VIII actually has a really interesting story to other parts of history, specifically European history. He's the same Pope who was deeply embroiled in the debate over Copernicanism and the Galileo affair. So Pope Urban was a staunch opponent of the heliocentric solar system. So the then idea, which is now, of course, understood to be scientific truth, that the sun is the center of our galaxy and the earth revolves around the sun. That was very much against church teaching during the time of Pope Urban. And Urban actually called for Galileo's second trial for heresy. So to tie it all back together, Mrs. Allgood, when I was an incoming freshman at Fordham University, students were all asked to read a book entitled Galileo's Daughter, where Galileo wrote these letters to his his daughter, his estranged daughter, while he was under house arrest for the heresy trial. His daughter was actually studying to be a nun, and it's this really beautiful reflection on science and faith and it's it's a really neat book so if the students are looking for something else to read over the course of the summer i would recommend it it was a really interesting it's a really interesting look again at sort of faith and science and family and it really was it was a good it was a really good summer reading book uh to start my my college career that is awesome i'm glad that we ended with something uh so touching as that. That's that's wonderful. All right, gang. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you're still here at the end of the episode, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Uh, I hope you guys learned something today. There's one more episode that you've got to listen to. It's about English colonization. Again, you can find these podcasts on the Who Knew, a history podcast feed, as well as the separate Who Knew Presents the New World feed. But on behalf of Mrs. Allgood, this is Mr. Rickson, and we look forward to talking to you guys at the final episode of this mini-series, Who Knew Presents the New World. Take care, everybody. Bye!